Well, good morning. Today we're going to one of the Bible stories in the book of Daniel that is probably the most famous and well-read. I remember as a kid hearing this story. It's the story of the three Hebrew children who refuse to bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar has made, and they get thrown into a fiery furnace, and they come out alive. Such an amazing story. You might say, well, what in the world does that story have to do with us? Well, really, the question, I think, of the story is this. Is there a God who will come and help? When you get thrown into a fiery furnace, when life goes out of control, is there a God who will come and help? Is there a God so powerful, so good, so wise, whose truths and paths to freedom and flourishing are only reasonable to follow at all costs? Does this God have such a personal and present relationship with his people that his people could risk persecution, tribulation, knowing that he will be there to help them? And this God who rules, not just here and now in this time and history, but he's a transcendent and eternal God who rules now and throughout all of eternity. Well, humans live in time and space. Our lives, according to the Bible, they're like a vapor. I mean, like they're here and then they're gone. How in the world did Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego survive the chaos of exile in Babylon? There's one thing I think I see them consistently do. They never take their eyes off a God who is real and personal and powerful and transcendent and present. So everything goes crazy around them. Somehow, they're okay. We sang about that just now. Did you, did you notice that? I don't know what's going on in your life. You got any chaos going on? I saw one person raise their hand. Thank you for your honesty. Anybody here got some chaos going on in your life? There we go. Absolutely. How are you going to get through it? If there is a God in heaven who has come to help us, We've got hope. And if God, this God is so wise and powerful and personal and transcendent and he'll never die and he'll never be out of control and he, he will never fail us, then we're okay even in the chaos. These guys, they concluded that there is a God who will help. There is a God who can be trusted. There is a God who should be believed and followed at all cost. So we're going to take a look at Daniel chapter 3, and I'm, I'm kind of like, it's really hard to go through a whole chapter in a service, so bear with me. Here we go. Buckle your seatbelt. I'm going to rifle through some of these, these verses, uh, but I think this is just such an incredible story we can't overlook it. The first point I want to say is this. They have a king who basically says, I am God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. 
Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1, the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and whose width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, does it ever dawn on you that in the previous chapter when his dream was interpreted, Daniel interprets in the, the, the dream was a statue with a head of gold, uh, a, a chest of, of uh, silver, a body of bronze, legs of iron, and, and, then, and then Daniel has this great news for the king who is troubled by his dream, and he says, king, this is what I saw. This actually is the, I'm paraphrasing now, is the history of the world in the future. And you are the head of gold. King, you are the finest of kings your kingdom is the most powerful. You're the head of gold. But there is going to come another king after you. Oops, oops, what, 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 what did you just say? All deluded kings hope that they will live forever. And even though the greeting is often, O oh, king, live forever, all of us saying that, no, that ain't going to happen. Can I tell you something? You're not going to live forever. King Nebuchadnezzar, however, he builds an image. We don't know precisely what that image is. I wonder if it looked a lot like the guy in his dream. And in this, this image that he built, it wasn't just a head of gold. It was a whole body of gold. Was he kind of denying the fact that even he would have a limited lifespan? And, you know, we are expert at denying our own death. We love, I don't like to think about dying. Yesterday, I came home after doing a funeral, and my son James, who, will, he always interviews me, wants to know where I went. Uh, James, I, Dad, where you go? Uh, funeral. Now, this guy has been to more funerals than any young man should have to go to. I'm just saying. But he's, you know what, he's, he's the pastor's son. He's got to go because we can't leave him at home alone. So, he goes with me. He didn't go yesterday because didn't have to go. So he wanted to know about the funeral. I told him somebody had passed away. And, and then he says, um, he says, uh, uh, Dad, you, Mom, live 100, and then you pass away. Now, you know, I'm hoping that was a good thing that he wants, see, even I'm kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. I don't want to think about passing away, right? I said, well, you know, James, all of us pass away. I'm, I'm going to pass away. Mom, you, everybody. Uh, he says, nope, not me. I said, but everybody passed away. Uh, Dad, I will survive. <laughs> we got a little Nebuchadnezzar going on in my house. You know what I'm saying? I think Nebuchadnezzar was kind of fighting the reality. What does he do? He constructs this magnificent statue, 90 feet tall. I, doubt, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not, it wasn't pure gold. That would be unthinkable probably, but it was overlaid in gold. How tall is 90 feet? Let me give you a visual for that. From the floor to the peak of the ceiling, that's 50 feet this statue was almost double that high. 
It was 90 feet. It was put out on the plains. Whenever you, whenever you come up to it, it is, you can't ignore this incredible image. When the sun shines on it, it glistens gold. It's probably hard to look at. This is one of the most impressive works of craftsmanship and engineering ever in the, in the history of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar was known for doing some incredible things. There were the hanging gardens of Babylon. And then now he decides he's going to create this image. And this image would be 90 foot. And it was. Now the king goes to the second level and he demands to be worshipped. Now, he's not saying worship me exactly, but bow down to my image, the image I have made. Verse 2, King Nebuchadnezzar sent word together, uh, to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, uh, and all of the officials of the province. I'm going really fast because, you know, there's just, we're going to repeat that exact same phrase a couple times in this chapter. You know what it's saying there? The who's who of Babylon were there. Think the inauguration of an American president. Think the Emmys or the Oscars or whatever all those shows are. Everybody dressed up in their finest, ready for the camera, posing for their photo shoot. Everybody was there, all dressed up. Because the king has invited us and we're dedicating something here today. So he brings them all together. And they stood before the, before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And what, whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a fiery, a burning fiery furnace. Now that's clear. There's no, it is suggested. It would be great if you all would be willing to fall down and, and worship this. No, no, no. When you hear the music and the symphony, fall down and worship. And if you don't, Nebuchadnezzar was fond of the stick and the carrot. You know what I'm saying? Here's the motivation. I'm going to kill you. That usually works. Okay? You know, one thing I do love about this is that um, he sets up this incredible moment, an impressive image to look at, in fact, impossible to overlook. All the influential, smart people all dressed up in their finest. And then he adds the music. You know what the music adds drama? Have you ever watched a scary movie with the volume all the way down? It's not nearly that scary. Have you ever watched a grand moment in a movie with the volume all the way down? That's eh, not all that impressive. You add the music and boy, the emotion, the intensity, and the drama just all come together in that moment. And the king says, this is my moment. I want you to all be unified around the worship of this image. Now, can you imagine the concentrated pressure of the moment for Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. 
Now, they had been loyal, faithful servants in Babylon. In fact, their names were changed. These are their Babylonian names. They dressed like Babylonian nobles. They spoke the language. In fact, they worked for the success of the kingdom as government employees. They knew the instructions of Jeremiah were, you need to seek the peace and the prosperity of your city because even though you're in exile, I'm gonna be with you in exile and I will bless you. You, you seek the peace and prosperity of the city and the blessing is gonna come to you as well. So understand, this is the sovereign plan of God based upon whatever happened in the past and now this is where you are. So I want you to be there and I will bless you even in exile. So they had been doing that. However, they have been called upon by the king to go beyond the flexibility they felt like they possessed because now they are asked to fall down and worship the image. And their core conviction is that there is a true and living God who rules heaven and earth. A God who has a relationship with them, who is all wise and loving. And the nature of the one true and living God is you can't have an all-powerful God and worship other gods at the same time. It just doesn't go together. So the music sounds and everybody begins to bow down, except for three guys in the crowd, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Sure enough, there are people that would love to see them demoted so that they can be promoted. They immediately bring this to the attention of King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, there are, verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Whoa. What's the consequence for that? Fiery furnace. Death. Have you ever felt like there is constant pressure on you and around you to conform to the world that you live in? You ever feel that? I mean, we want to succeed, right? We want people to accept us. We want to be thought of as cool or popular or, you know... We, we, wanna, we, we don't want to stick out in the crowd, but we don't want to be sucked in by the crowd. It's a complicated thing to be alive, right? I remember going shopping one time with my son, Robert. We went down to Branson, and we went to the outlet mall, and he said, hey, come, let's go into Banana Republic, Dad. Okay, sure, let's do it. So we walk into Banana Republic. He says, you know, the, this is kind of expensive, but, you know, the good thing about Banana Republic is whatever you buy here is cool. I mean, it's cool by the fact that it has Banana Republic on it. Oh, really? Yeah. I said, well, I'm going to buy something too then. Because I want to be cool. What, do you want to be a dork? One of my friends said, yeah, you know, Pastor, the older I get, the younger I dress. That's a whole different subject. 
Did you know that there is a, there is a category of people called influencers? You do know this. People on social media who are influencers. And in 2021, they list the top 10 influencers. Now, I'm talking, these people are making bank. The, of the top 10, the least amount of followers they have are 300 million people. That's like the whole country, except for it's all over the world. Uh, here are some of the top influencers of 2021. Ariana Grande, Selena Gomez, Kylie Jenner, Taylor Swift, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, Justin Bieber. I mean, Justin Bieber is number two. He has over 300 million followers. I mean, when Justin Bieber launched his clothing line called Drew, so I'm told, it was an immediate success. Do you know why? He's got 300 million people that follow him and think, oh, man, it'd be cool to buy that T-shirt. And then I met a guy, and he says, hey, Pastor, I like my T-shirt. I says, yeah, nice T-shirt. Looks like a nice, looks like a T-shirt, like nice T-shirt. But you don't even want to know how much I paid for this. I said, what's so, what's so special about that T-shirt? Oh, this is Justin Bieber's T-shirt brand. It's Drew. And he never told me how much he paid. Do you know that Justin Bieber, however, is not the top influencer? These people, by the way, when they drop a post, their sponsors pay them $200,000, $300,000, and the top ones, $500,000 for dropping a post. They're making millions every year because they're influencers. Justin Bieber, um, 505 million followers, but the top number one influencer in 2021 was a guy maybe you don't, have never heard of. I don't know if you've heard of him or not. He has worldwide appeal. He's a Portuguese soccer player by the name of Cristiano Ronaldo. How many have ever heard of him? Look at how dumb I am. He has 627 million followers. Last year, he sat at a press conference, and when he sat down, there were two Coca-Cola bottles strategically placed before, before him near the mic. Now, make no mistake, these were not random placements. These are all carefully scripted moves. Well, during this, um, this uh, uh, press conference, he actually pushed the Coca-Cola bottles away, and he says to his crowd, you should drink water instead. The market value of that particular stock dropped $4 billion with that single comment, so, there, so it was reported. That's influence. You know, influence is not good or bad. It's just there. And you have to decide whether it's good or bad. And peer pressure is, is a real deal. None of us are immune from it. We need to pay attention to it. We must have our own core convictions and manage the pressure carefully. These three Hebrew boys succeeded literally with the supernatural power of God while they were willing to acquiesce to many of the Babylonian influences, when they were told to betray their God and bow down to the image and to the gods of Babylon, 
they wouldn't do it. When was the last time you refused to go with a crowd? When was the last time you evaluated and decided what your core convictions were? And then you stood for them. You know, the truth is that our devotion to God, it's, it's got to be, it's got a hard part to it. I have, I had neighbors, Cindy and I, and I've mentioned this to you before, they were Hindus and they, they were wonderful people. We loved them as our neighbors. And I would ask, I asked the man one day, hey, tell me about your Hindu religion. I don't even understand. And he says, oh, Ed, even I don't understand it. We have tens of thousands of gods in my religion. It's so complicated. Here's basically what I do. If the elders tell me it's a day to fast, I fast. If the elders tell me it's a day to feast, I feast. He says, I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's too complicated for me. And you know, when I heard him say that, I, I, I reflected on what Jesus said in John 14, 6, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And many people are offended by that exclusive, exclusive claim. But actually, this is a beautiful thing because God cuts through the chase and says, there is one true and living God. There is one Son of God who has come to rescue you and to help you and to, and to lead you. It's not complicated. It's easy to understand. By accepting all gods, you move into the chaos of this kind of confusion. When the truth is that when God says he is a jealous God, what he means is that he knows that he alone is the true and the living God and all others are counterfeits and will not and cannot deliver human beings from their fallenness. Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to know there's no one else powerful enough to help you. There's no one else coming for you. There is no other God who loves you like I love you as passionately as I do. I have pursued you. I will forgive you. I I will heal your brokenness. I know, how, I know uh, the deep feelings that you have of regret and guilt, and I am here to forgive and wash that all away. I know the inner pain that you carry that come from the wounds of others who have hurt you and inflicted things upon you. I know the deep sense of silent dread that comes over you when you think about death and dying, when you think about being separated from your loved ones. I know the fear that you carry when you imagine the day you will draw your last breath and you are confused as to whether or not there will still be hope. I'm just going to tell you, here's the conclusion. I, this is Jesus speaking, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. No one else is coming for you. No one else can help you. No other God loves you and pursues you as relentlessly as I do. I'm not, God is not calling us to a vague sense of spirituality. God is a person, and he is calling you and I to himself. And these guys had a core conviction that led them to say, 
No. O king, there is no point in us trying to discuss this matter. We, we, we respect and honor the king, but we will not bow to your gods and betray our God. You know, the king pulls them in and says, hey, listen, hey, come on, let's just talk about this. Does it really matter who is God? I mean, you know, honestly, <laughs> I'm standing before you today, the sovereign ruler of Babylon, the one who will kill you in a few minutes. I'm pretty much God to you right now. Don't mess my moment up. I envisioned a beautiful moment of kingdom unity. And the three of you standing when everybody else bows, messes my moment up. You know, the world all around us is constantly presenting images for many different things and are, we are being asked to bow down. Um, the, the world around us is changing its understanding of the value of life. We hear a lot about babies in the womb, but the truth of Scripture is that God says, I, I created, I create every baby in the womb. I knit them together. You know, when I read that in Scripture, that's astounding to me. Have you ever met somebody that you really admired and and they called your name, and you were surprised that they knew your name? This is God, and he says, hey, I've known you before you even knew you. I know everything about you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I formed you because I have a plan for you. I love you. I have a purpose for your life. God chose your gender, the color of your eyes, the color of your skin. When you were born, to be carefully created by our creator is not a burden, it is not a confinement, it is a gift of purpose and meaning, and to discover the plan of God and fulfill our mission is our delight. God knows us and loves us. We're not just a glob of cells. That blows my mind. The world around us is changing the understanding. They're creating an image for what family means. And I'm just here to say it gets more complicated by the month. And I believe with all my heart that God loves every family and everybody in every situation. But when it comes to the, 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 the family that God designed, here, here it is, it's simple. A man and a woman who pledge their lives to each other to live in love with exclusivity till death do us part. And the reward of their union is children. How many kids are just they just dream of growing up in that kind of a secure environment. This is the plan of God. 
when our world is constantly changing its understanding of human sexuality. I mean, this wonderful gift to a man and a woman who have pledged themselves together in, in marriage till death do us part is a powerful gift that brings so much goodness and enhances the unity of the couple. Sexual expression beyond the design of God truly brings hardship, and many people have been hurt. To hear the teaching of Jesus and to surrender to his vision on every single topic in our culture is, it is to see what is good. We're also living in a culture now where while we proclaim that we're all about pluralistic ideas of everything, the one thing that our culture hates is when anyone refuses to bow down you'll get canceled. We've even got a word for it now. But this persecution of those who followed the narrow definition of God that leads to human flourishing and blessing, they took Jesus and put him on a cross. He said, if they're going to do this to your master, they're going to do this to you too. You should expect to be canceled. But stand on conviction because the world needs the truth. Rick Warren said this about tolerance. The problem is that tolerant was cha has changed its meaning. It used to mean I may disregard you with, I'm, I may disagree with you completely, but I will treat you with respect. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's where we need to live. Today, tolerant means you must approve of everything I do. There's a difference between tolerance and approval. Jesus accepted everyone no matter who they were. He does, doesn't approve of everything I do or you do or anybody else does. You can be accepting without being approving. This is the world in which we live. This was that moment in the life of Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. Shadrach, in verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we have no need to answer you in this matter. O king, we don't need to discuss this any further. We're not here to debate or argue. I mean, it's settled for us, and so we, we get it. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. So they fully expected that God was going to intervene. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set I think it's very important to see the full scope of their theology here in that they said that he is able to deliver us. If he does not, we're still not going to bow down. We still proclaim him as God eternal. You know, one of our biggest challenges in life is that when we pray for something and then God doesn't answer it the way we ask. 
I know in our family, there have been prayers that have been lifted up for Cindy's daddy who had cancer. And then God did not answer those prayers to heal him, and he died at 44. I talk to people all the time who say that they're rethinking whether or not they're going to follow God because they prayed for this and they prayed for that and they prayed for their, their, their father or their mother and then they died anyway. And so, I mean, you know, don't you know that following and worshiping God should include a willingness to receive from his hand the sovereign plan that sometimes even hurts. I loved how they included that. Job 13, 15 is such a great verse to guide me. Job, you should read the book of Job. It'll depress you, but anyway, you should read it. After losing so much, this is what Job says. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Wow. Because those who know God know that he is an eternal, transcendent God whose time frame isn't limited by our lifespan or our current situation. Nebuchadnezzar is full of fury. Even to the point where he says, heat that furnace seven times hotter. Like, what, you, you burn them up faster? I don't get it, but anyway, an expression of his anger. Now throw them in. And the soldiers that carried them close enough to the furnace to throw them in, they themselves dropped dead because of the heat of the furnace. It was that hot. And then the king looked. Um, and this is what he had to say in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? And they answered and said to him, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Well, this is high-level stuff, I'm telling you. They're walking around. They're not dead. And there's a fourth one there. Even this pagan king says, looks like the son of God or an angel of God or he, he wasn't quite sure. Many of us believe, many people do believe that that was a theophany, a pre-incarnation appearance of Jesus in the flames with them. We can discuss that on another day. But there's this promise in Isaiah 43, 1 to 2. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. 
And through the rivers they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. And there he was with them in the fire. This story asks the question, um, is there a God who will help in the chaos of our life? Is there a God powerful enough to help? And the answer is, oh yes. Yes, he can and he will. And this is the hope that carries us through the hardest times of our lives. And when we act with conviction to our own peril and at a cost to ourselves, we very profoundly declare this is not a religious debate. This is about a personal God who is real and alive and working in me. Kill me if you must. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Will you bow your heads? This is a God who did not leave us in our broken, fallen, sinful world. This is a God who did not leave us in our sinfulness. This is a God who has come to help. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It's further unpacked throughout the New Testament. You know, while we were still sinners, while we were still the enemies of God, Jesus came. And he came to save us. Jesus knows what it's like to go through the fire. He hung on a cross one day and he had the, the sin of the world poured out upon him. And he experienced death on a cross. And in the fire of that trial, he won the victory and he bought our redemption. And he says, I know. I paid because I love you so much. And that he died and rose again. And he says, and if you will believe in me, you will not perish but have everlasting life. What do you have to do? Just believe. You might say, I don't know enough to believe. Maybe you do. You know that you're sinful and you need to be forgiven. You know that you're going to die and you need hope that you will not perish. You dream of eternal life, and Jesus says, I'm going to give it to you. And you accept that Jesus died for you, and he rose again. And all you need to do is believe. So pray with me. If you've never done this, say, Dear God in heaven, I need the God who has come to help. Dear God, I believe Jesus died on a cross to pay for my sin. He rose again 
and promises a resurrection. There's no one else coming for me. So Jesus, I ask you to forgive me. And I surrender to you today. Come into my life. I need your help. I want your help. Be my savior. You know, if you prayed with me today, I, I hope you'll fill out the connection card and then just check that today you accepted Christ. Maybe you're online. You could go to our 94,000 and just put prayed and we'll, we'll contact you. And you know what? I, I cannot fully understand the pain and the suffering and the struggle of the people that I am in contact with here in the church. It's more painful than we can describe. And God says, I know, but you have never shed a tear. I didn't notice. So in your pain and struggle, would you believe that I'm coming with you? And just trust me. I got gotcha. you. I will prove my goodness. Maybe right there in your seat, you, you should just say, God, here's my struggle. I need your help. Will you please help me today? Even in the middle of the chaos of this trial, 